Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Barbara Meyer-Troutman, a partner in Milbank's leverage finance practice, and Marcus Moose, a partner in Milbank's corporate and private equity practice, both based in Munich. I can see that some of the valuations, in, not in the infra, but in the general space, have been overly optimistic. And I think there will be a little bit of a shakeout there. Let's get to it. Thank you, Barbara and Marcus, both for taking the time to get together today. It's a real pleasure. Pleasure to speak. So let's set the stage. If you look in the United States at the factors that people would identify as really shaping the market in 2022, I think people would identify rising interest rates, expectations, uh, inflation, supply chain disruptions that are continuing, and oh yeah, thanks to the pandemic, which is now going into its third year uh, with COVID-19. When we look in Europe, I think the picture is a bit more nuanced. Certainly, the ECB is reducing asset purchases, but is continuing historically low interest rates with monetary support continues. Certainly a more accommodative fiscal policy for most Eurozone governments. Uh, we're seeing big investments in infrastructure that have been announced. New grants this month from the Connecting Europe facility, an announcement of over 300 billion euro in new worldwide public and private investment out of Europe in the Global Gateway Initiative for sustainable infrastructure in digital climate, energy, transportation, health, and education. Certainly energy prices have been quite a shock that with the situation in the Ukraine and geopolitics with, with Russia, Germany, and the rest of the EU, that could be potentially aggravated. But if you look at the leverage loan markets and infrastructure in Europe, I want to dig deeply today. We'll look at ESG and some other things, but really take, get your, your feel for the market first. Leverage loan markets have seen record volumes, low and declining default rates. We may see more volatility in credit spreads later in the year, but generally speaking in Europe, GDP growth looks to be supporting very strong earnings and revenue performance from companies. So with all of this in the mix, Barbara, if you look at last year, you look at this year and kind of forecasting up ahead, what do you think is the state of the market? So when I look at the last year compared to the prior year, particularly focusing, let's say, on continental Europe to start with. And they're more on the M&A leverage side and then we maybe touch the infrastructure side in a second or maybe Marcus can then pick up the infrastructure side. We've seen, compared to the year before, where everybody was a little bit in the waiting, what's going to happen, insecurity all over the place, deals which had started still finished, but predominantly people were a little bit in secure what I have, not look to, to move ahead. That's changed a little bit. Uh, so there was more security around. We saw, saw more transactions which were forward-looking. People were thinking for some point in time that actually we were done with the pandemic to a certain extent, and there's more positiveness now. What hasn't changed from the year before, at least in, in, in continental Europe, is that given there's a very low interest environment, there's a hell of a lot of money to be invested in anything which has something but a negative interest on it. So the market has still been dominated by floods of money, both for equity, but also for financing. Yeah, and have the, the, the low interest rates and the fiscal and the monetary stimulus that have sort of juiced the markets on both sides of the Atlantic. If that changes, if we see a tightening of monetary and fiscal policy going into 2022, potentially rising interest rates in Europe, perhaps it'll be more in earlier in the United States, but uh, how do you expect that to impact the markets? 
the thought about interest rates raising has already been around. And if you had looked at what's been quoted for a 10-year tenor, a 7-year tenor, a 12-year tenor, we saw a little bit of a rise of interest rates, but we hadn't seen any great change in investment activities or fundraising or anything like that. It's a very difficult question to ask. My personal feeling is that interest rates will not rise midterm fundamentally in continental Europe. If that should be the case, it might well be that maybe more on the infrastructure finance side, people will start shifting money a little bit away from investing in the infrastructure. Maybe not that much on the leverage finance side, on the um, typical PE finance side. It remains to be seen. So I'm a little bit, I think actually you will rise the Americans will rise the interest rates well ahead of continental Europe. In a way, we can't afford it. Governments can't afford it, and the EU can't afford it, maybe. Yeah, and cost of capital, supply of capital, that's only one part of the equation. I think, Marcus, if you look at the role that confidence plays in the markets, in particular, this question of certainty or uncertainty about future earnings or future cash flows, we saw a lot of dislocation in 2020 with the pandemic, a lack of confidence that chilled deal volumes a significant expansion in activity in 2021, in part because of things that shifted forward, and in part because there was a significant increase in confidence over company prospects and economic conditions. Looking into 2022, do you sense from your clients that they still have a high degree of confidence about future economic performance, or is there more uncertainty perhaps in the next year than we've seen so far lately? The general sense that I get the last year, people think that the asset class has proven its investment thesis in a way over the COVID crisis. So in many sectors, the investments have been very stable and not been impacted by supply chain issues or other issues resulting from the COVID restrictions, leaving businesses like airports maybe aside. So generally, I think the confidence in the asset class as such seems to be very high. And I mean, if you look at fundraising numbers, we are getting close to 125 billion US dollars having been raised the last year alone in over 90 infrastructure funds. That's a huge amount of money that has been collected and that is going to continue over the next years. Yeah, I know you and I have actually done, done work for some similar funds on different sides of the Atlantic. And one of the things I've noticed is they've also, not only do they have new money coming in, but there's been a, a very successful string of exits which is creating the need now to recycle some of that money. Barbara, are you seeing that driving transactions as well? So definitely. I mean, if you look at Germany, huge exits, brilliant deals, and people will need to recycle the money for sure. And I think on top of that, you've seen both for Germany and the EU, huge programs to invest in infrastructure. So I think I'd like to pick on what Marcus has said. He said that infrastructure during the pandemic has been pretty stable as an asset, other than, you know, maybe transportation. But I'd add and say on um, social infrastructure, hospitals, anything around hospitals, schools, anything around schools, and digital infrastructure, anything telecom, work from home, does it work, does it not work? Fiber, um, actually got a push. And I think when I look at what the new German government is planning and what the EU has just said, and they call it next generation EU or something like that, what they want to invest in, alongside private investors, increases sort of in a way the stability and the ask for additional assets and for developing new infrastructure projects. I don't see increased uncertainty on the one hand side, and I see increased activity supported by 
government or EU in continental Europe. So if you stay in infrastructure for a second and across sectors, let's leave airports aside for a moment, but let's look at transportation, energy, perhaps telecommunications and digital infrastructure for sure, water potentially as a sector, just attracting investment. There's a wide range of disparity within continental Europe and within the EU as far as even government policies, but certainly markets and growth. Is that How critical is that government support for the revenues versus more of a market risk? And that may differ by sector across Europe. It's difficult to say. So on the German transactions that, that, that we've been working on over the last years, government support was not the decisive factor. So the government support for, uh, for example, for renewables has been cut back over the last decade significantly. And nevertheless, the project development has reached a stage where, where you don't need or don't depend on government support. And that's probably true for other sectors. On the telecommunications side, if you look at rural areas which are less developed, there's a need for government support. Also on the social side and on the transportation side, it's less important for many sectors than it has been maybe, say, 15 years ago, where we had a a heavy subsidization of, for example, renewables. Barbara, thoughts on the same topic? Yeah, just adding that, and Marcus has mentioned that, in the rural areas, I'm not going to compare um, Eastern or Northern Germany with Greece in any form or shape. But if you look at two or three projects which we've been doing there in relation of the fiber optics cable um, financing and infrastructure projects, government support in the one or the other way has been helpful. Sometimes just a statement that I want this to be rolled out, that I want telecom to start and others to um, fit in is equally helpful as it is in Greece, where basically uh, some of the stuff actually is regulated still by governmental authorities and where, for example, Greece has now started to use the EU program to give subsidized loans for uh, digital infrastructure projects to subsidize the capital cost. So I'd say there's still some areas where government support in any form or shape is very welcome and actually drives then the expansion. Yeah, and your know, telecom digital infrastructure in particular, it's it struck me having worked on it myself for many many years that the role that government policy plays is probably secondary to the role that technology plays, and disruptive technology especially. And this rollout, for example, of five G, which is works very well in dense urban environments, it doesn't work very well if, or at least it's very expensive to try to use it in less dense or rural environments, uh, and it's very power hungry. So it, it increases just as a shift to EVs and transportation increases the demand on electricity, so do digital and telecom advances. Is there work being done to in your clients to kind of look at these different sectors as being linked, energy and digital, or energy and transportation, or digital versus transportation use on different structures, and kind of look at infrastructure as an asset class that's evolving in a way where there's more convergence among sectors as opposed to what we've seen so far where certain funds or certain investors become very specialized in certain aspects of those services or certain technologies that are meant to meet them? I would think that we've seen limited convergence across sort of the, the subsectors in infrastructure. So the only example that comes to my mind is, is data centers, where you combine a data center with, with green power production through long-term PPAs or linked up renewables facilities. We've seen a little bit of green steel, for example, where you say we're, we're as of creating a steel production facility, which is powered by green power. So in that sense, yes. Otherwise, I would think it's it's limited. The, if you look at the telecommunication infrastructure, in particular 5G, 
I would think that the infrastructure investment or the infrastructure layer is is still the hardware. So it's the tower, it's the power connection, but it's not the active equipment that's that's been installed by the network operator. Good. Thank you, Marcus. Barbara? From the point of view of leveraged finance and the private equity fund managers that are looking to deploy capital, whether their own investors' capital or, or borrowed money, ESG plays a, an increasing role in diligence, in investment selection, and even in deal terms. How are you seeing ESG play out in 2022 as an extension of the trends we're already seeing now? It'll even gain more importance than it ha- had been. So you've seen deals in Germany which were not financeable. For example, nicotine substitute, so electronic cigarette, which despite trying extremely hard through all means of financing, the deal was not financeable. So it was then, it became and stayed an all, an all equity deal. And that is true for banks, sort of the typical bank market, as well as funds who were as strict as uh, sort of the typical commercial banks were. Um, that's the one side of the matter. There are certain certain assets which are really hard to finance. Then there are assets which are green assets. They just get a tick, right? They can't do wrong. They get a green financing, which is still something different from an ESG-linked financing. You can get an ESG-linked financing or something which, if you look at it, in itself isn't very green, but it can improve on topics of E or S or D, and by that normally reduce the margin, for example. So you set an incentive to improve and by that get a better margin. And you see that across all types of deals, small cap, mid cap, jumbo deals in the leverage finance market. Uh, Marcus, in, in Europe, activist shareholders play a different role than they do traditionally in the United States. There also tends, I think, on the ESG side in the U.S. to be more of a trend toward disclosure requirements as opposed to compliance with a set of rules or metrics. When your clients are looking at ESG, is it viewed more as a risk factor, as an opportunity for value creation, or as a compliance requirement? I would think it's probably a mix of all of three, of the three aspects that you've just mentioned. So From a compliance perspective, that has gained importance over the last years. It's become a focus of of the due diligence exercise before you do your investment. It's also becoming a focus during the investment period to improve on the ESG policies, procedures, and, and compliance in the business. The awareness that these risks need to be managed, in particular during your holding period, is very high now. And on the other hand, it generates opportunities. So if you, if you look, for example, on the sale of, of GTEC that EKT has just signed with our help, which is an energy contracting provider, they did have sort of historic coal-fired power plants so in the portfolio. And sort of converting these, these smaller facilities into biomass facilities or other renewable energy facilities is a business case. Yeah, it's because these are runoff plants that come to the end of their lifetime. And, and that generates an, a new business opportunity for a company like that, which is in the business of engineering and constructing a small, small-scale energy production plants. Also, environmental services and everything that comes around it, or social services, is an attractive sector in, uh, for investments. Is it fair to say that more of the emphasis has been on the on the environmental prong of ESG or the climate prong, as opposed to the governance or social, or are those at least as important? 
and I'll, and I'll, I'll note, I mean, obviously in, in many European companies, governance practices have already taken into account for many, many years other stakeholder concerns like labor in particular and employees and uh, not and communities where the companies are located, not just the interests of shareholders. In, in stark contrast to typical U.S. corporate law emphases on maximizing shareholder profit. But are those prongs weighted equally? Is it Does it make sense to have ESG lump all these things together, Barbara? Yeah, I think it's. I think what you've said actually resonates with me. And I think it's true. If I look back last year, let's talk about what it, how it'll be maybe looking forward. But I think the focus has pretty much been on environment as something which seemed easy to focus on. Everybody focused on it anyway, so it seemed to have been sort of the, the, the biggest focus as also maybe because Germans and continental Europeans thought that on governance. You know, we're actually doing quite well anyway, aren't we? So people tend to focus on where arguably there's the, the easiest uplift, really. With the new program of the German government, which, as you know, we have a coalition of three parties, including the Green Party, there will be overall focus, ongoing focus on, on environment and climate change and, you know, change the way you produce your current and so on and so forth, power plants and so on and so forth. Marcus, your thoughts? It's also partly driven by the sector. An infrastructure asset is typically not a production or trading business. So if you look at supply chain issues and questions like child labor or, or other topics or modern slavery, that is not the primary issue that you would be concerned about if you have an infrastructure asset, which is physically located in Germany and once it's built, is supplied with some fuel and produces energy or transports data. So against that background, I think that the focus has indeed been on environmental matters because that's been the most critical element in infrastructure assets so far. I think uh, governance, also compliance with, with laws and regulations is also a focus area. But as Barbara said, it, I think the general perception is on these things, we are doing quite well, at least in Western Europe. We live up to a relatively high standard in, in these areas already, I, I, would, I would think. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, okay, let me ask you, let's stay on this governance piece and look in particular at privacy and GDPR and cybersecurity and what trends you might see coming in 2022 in those areas. We've done a couple of sell-side mandates, including telecom operators over the last years and buy-side mandates. And it's been an area that's been tested in the due diligence, of course. I'm not sure it's, it's, it's politically correct to say that, but in many instances, I would think the the layer that you operate as an infrastructure provider is less data intensive. So unless you're in telecommunications where you transport data, which is traditionally highly secured because it's always been about secure transmission, you're not in a business that uh, is based on the processing of personal data or the exploitation of, of personal data. If you have database models or data link models, it's typically technical data that you use and not so much personal data because of the link to, to physical assets. So Marcus, when you look at the energy sector across Europe and challenges with integration of renewables into the grid, where do you see investment opportunities coming? I'll give you a specific example. So when, when the North Sea can produce massive amounts of wind power, but there's transmission constraints in getting that power down into southern Germany or, or even elsewhere into Europe. 
when there may be additional gas resources encouraged because of potentially new gas supplies from Russia coming into Europe, which could certainly displace coal, that's good, but it could also slow the integration of renewables. Where do you see the energy sector shaking out uh, in, the, in, the, in the coming years? If you look at the transmission grids that probably have the highest demand for investment over the next 10, 15 years, and that is high double-digit billion euro amounts that, that will be required in Germany to well, basically transport power from the north to the south. That is an investment opportunity on the one hand side. On the other hand side, it's the transmission networks are held by, uh, by relatively powerful financial investors already. So it's, it's an interesting field. Returns are very low based on the current regulations. So it's not, it's not an attractive field for many of the investors targeting slightly higher returns. It's, it's more an attractive field for core infrastructure investors looking at very reliable cash flows and very low risk profiles. So that, that is certainly something that's going to come and where there's a huge amount of, of capital needed to cope with the, uh, with the upcoming challenges. If you look at, at Germany, it is a pretty scattered landscape when it comes to distribution networks, where probably a lot of investment is required as well, be it either enhanced copper networks or a digitalization of, uh, of networks so that you uh, have smarter networks, which can also control uh, consumers and producers, which are connected to the local grids. These are owned by uh, public utilities. Uh, some are privatized, mostly mostly public utilities. And it's a highly diversified scene. So it's, it's a bit more difficult from an investor's perspective to build up a size and momentum in this, in these areas. If you look on the generation side, those businesses who haven't sort of separated coal fired power plants and nuclear power plants from, from the rest of their business are struggling to finance or to get financed to get access to capital markets. So that will drive other developments over the next, I would say, two, three years. Well, I would expect to see a, a clearer separation of uh, legacy assets into uh, structures that allow a proper runoff of these power plants. Yeah, not unlike after the last recession, when a lot of the banks, West LB comes to mind, were split. Well, you get the bad bank that's holding the legacy assets with deteriorating value and the good bank that gets to do all the fun stuff going forward. Barbara, when you look at private equity clients and the debt providers behind them, and they look at technology in this area, we can look at infrastructure in particular or technology more broadly. What's the appetite for emerging technologies that may have risks? So, for example, green hydrogen in the energy space, some kinds of new energy storage uh, that, that's coming down or new digital information uh, technologies. Are these viewed as kind of almost quasi-VC points of entry where there's high risk but potentially high reward if a few of them hit? Or are they still viewed as something which is more in the wheelhouse of traditional infrastructure class investors where it's relatively low risk, stable cash flows, and just needs kind of a, a nudge of regulatory support, perhaps, in order to, to find traction? So I think on, on it really depends on the technology, right? I think hydrogen, probably, but Marcus will correct me, is already more on being attractive to be looked at the less venture capital type of infrastructure investors. There's other stuff around where it is more really the, the, the venture capital people who do the first step and the second step and the first five financing rounds. And then we will see where it goes. But I think hydrogen is attractive already 
to pretty much everybody. And I think the one way people look at it is that when they look at networks and rather they purchase them, which are currently not used for the distribution of hydrogen, can they be used for the distribution of hydrogen at a later um, uh, point in time, for example? I think hydrogen, in particular, if you look at the gas transportation networks, has been part of the equity story that these assets have been sold lately. Also, uh, with a view to the very low equity returns allowed by the regulator on the gas transportation network. So some upside potential in the business, I guess, was needed. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next years. I think for infrastructure funds in particular, it's getting ever more challenging to pick the right point in time where something new uh, switches from venture to growth to infrastructure plus to core infrastructure. And one of my clients put it like this, he said, fiber has gone from venture to core infrastructure in 18 months. And that was the window where you needed to do an early stage investment in order to realize the increase in value that is coming from a change of, of a business model from uh, infrastructure plus to, to core infrastructure. Let's stay with this idea of acceleration for a second, because this use of data analytics to get deals done faster and to do diligence quicker, trends in technology of becoming commercial much more quickly. I mean, just looking at the mRNA vaccines. I mean, who would have thought that two years ago, this highly experimental technology would have been proven safe and effective and deployed on and commercially uh, with, you know, tremendous government and private investment, you know, on a, on a global basis to fight a pandemic. Is this acceleration blurring the lines then between traditional private equity and infrastructure, and I'll add real estate and perhaps other asset classes, is it going to become a question maybe of of just return thresholds as opposed to sectoral specificity? The way I see a, a couple of, of private equity houses addressing that challenge is by setting up funds for the different uh, sort of maturity stages. So many of them now have a core infrastructure fund and then they have something that's value add fund which is more the typical private equity model that takes a bit more risk and and generates higher returns and then there's at least active consideration to do something in earlier stage areas where you want to participate in the game whether that's going to be a meaningful addition to the venture or growth funds that we see remains to be seen, but that's how you how you would try to participate in all areas that a new infrastructure sector develops. On the more pure private equity side, you see the same. You see funds who wouldn't have really looked at more opportunistic opportunities and would have left those for the venture capital guys to then purchase them at the right point in time, have started to set up their own smaller funds, call them opportunistic fund one to whatever, and start earlier, not to lose out, as Marcus has said, to right point in time before this takes off. Yeah. So I think on the private equity side, I see that as well, but not as an overall theme. It is more, you know, if I look at maybe 10 funds, it's two or two, two who are doing that. And the others are more still trying to find the right time to take it over from the VC guy. And there's, you know, given still continuing liquidity, continuing exit opportunities and exit valuations, I I would expect that will continue. We're probably a long way away from everybody piling into the new distressed funds. When you look at next year, what makes you the most excited and what makes you the most cautious or fearful? Barbara? So I think on the cautious side, really, during the pandemic, the insolvency laws in Germany have been dispensed. 
and hell of a lot of money has been flooding the market and we've seen hardly any insolvencies at all. It's now started really a little bit hidden. Automotive supplier sector, it's often smaller companies, so it doesn't really hit the deadlines. There started to be a, a chain of insolvencies and it actually accelerates. So you've got three, four um, suppliers going insolvent. It can take over to a bigger supplier, will lie to the smaller supplier, and it goes on. So this is certainly one of the areas which is struggling right now. Interestingly enough, there are also other areas within the German economy which have been struggling. Put aside travel, right? Travel is obvious, but yeah. So, and who have been with all the state aid doing still okay. So the insolvency law is back. A little bit of a uh, period to get used to the new to, to, to the new old insolvency law has now passed, and people will become much more serious about the very very strict insolvency laws in Germany. And therefore, I expect that there will be more restructurings. Even though there's a hell of a lot of money, there will be more restructurings, and ultimately there will be more insolvencies, which also will create new opportunities. That's the biggest threat. And what are we really looking forward to in the leveraged finance area? maybe a comeback of capital markets more than we've seen. So high-yield bonds, we haven't really seen a lot. High-yield bond is brilliant if the, if the window is open to get an even higher leverage with hardly any covenants. So let's see that at some point in time that uh, that window opens again. Until then, you know, there'll be huge term loan B financings with very attractive terms for the borrower. Yeah, I think that's really what we're looking for and doing these deals across continental Europe. I want to stay with you for a second, and, and then Marcus, I'll come back to you with the same question about excitement and, and being cautious. But when you talk about insolvencies, Barbara, and the kind of they're just starting in suppliers, and, and we certainly see that globally as well. In Journey, is it really just, is it that Mittelstand, is that is it these these smaller companies that are suppliers to bigger companies, and the bigger companies are you know pretty well capitalized? Could that lead to vertical integration? Could that lead, together with supply chain disruptions, to big companies sort of swallowing up some of their suppliers in order not just to bail them out, but to preserve that productive capacity and to preserve that supply chain and maybe take more control over it instead of having it be just in time and globally dispersed the way it's been for the last 20 years. Yeah, I think it could be an opportunity so far. It really depends. If you've got one or two suppliers who can only supply a part for your car, there's anything really other than that what you would do, right? You either give them a loan or you just you know, add them to your value chain to manage that risk. The insolvency we've seen is more where there are 10 automotive suppliers around the world or continental Europe were able to supply the same type of asset. And therefore, so far, souls have more gone in the direction of insolvency. But it, it would be great. Some of um, the bigger OEMs as well as the part suppliers are our clients, and they're always looking for opportunities. So, um, however, right now, I think they're a little bit in between. They have problems with <clears throat> being supplied. On the other hand side, OEMs, at least in Germany, have changed their behavior towards their suppliers, and they tend to no longer take things on stock, but they are much more stricter. You know, I only take whatever you normally supply me with on a regular basis if I actually can use it. And if something else is missing, I can't use it. I'm really sorry. There's no cash income for you. And that's what caused the real problem. And right now, they're a little bit in between. Thank you. 
Marcus, what makes you most uh, excited and most cautious when you look at 2022? I'm confident that our restructuring teams won't get many referrals from the infrastructure sector. It's been a resilient asset class. I think high gas prices can be a challenge for one or the other player, particularly if you have uh, like margin risk. It also creates an incentive to speed up your decarbonization efforts and move away from gas and sort of think about smarter ways of, of producing or using energy. So it can also open opportunities. Well, what makes me enthusiastic for, for the sector, there's still a, a lot of dry powder. What's a bit concerning sometimes is, from an investor's perspective, is the uh, lack of assets. So it's it's still a hugely competitive market, which is good if you're on the sell side uh, selling things, but doing good investments at sustainable valuations is probably the key challenge over the next year. And how much do you think valuations today reflect the fact that money is cheap and there's too few deals to be done? And how much do you think those valuations will prove to have been smart even in a tighter economy? I think on the, and maybe in for then second, but on the not infra the, the the normal leverage finance private equity market. I, I I think I've seen deals where the winner has been one and a half time above the next one, which suggests that you know smart people, five smart people are looking at the same asset. One comes up with a completely different valuation just because they really wanted to do the deal because they haven't done a deal for a long period of time. So I'm a little bit not worried because it's an opportunity as well, but I can see that some of the valuations in not in the infra, but in the general space have been overly optimistic. And I think there will be a little bit of a shake out there. So one way that sometimes lawyers can predict valuations, is, well, that's strange. That's a, that's not a very legal question. Um, but we see it in the, the, the changes over time in how covenants are negotiated. And in very strong markets where money's cheap, and the buy side has more leverage, they're able to get better terms and covenant packages may be weaker. Similarly, coming out of a distressed economy, covenants, everybody's afraid of whatever just happened and covenants can be quite a bit tighter. Are you seeing changes in the way covenants are being negotiated that are moving? I mean, I don't mean for any particular deal, but just as far as market standards in any of these areas that may give a hint, like a canary in the coal mine, or maybe coal mine is no longer you know, the right term, but, you know, you give a hint as to what might be coming. Yeah, I think in the leverage finance market, again, not the infrastructure, you would expect that by now, at least one player or two, normally they're competing with each other on the financing side as well as, you know, you would expect that maybe one or two would start to try to get a covenant into a deal to start with. There are no financial covenants from a certain size on, and the size has decreased heavily the deal size to, to expect it to be done cuff light. But as, as you know, it came, you were cuff light where you had a bond sitting next to your financing, but now forget about the bond, you're cuff light anyway. I'm still seeing, which is, you know, as a borrower's lawyer, you really like, I still see it being loosened further. The deal size is becoming smaller. Players who resisted, there were players in the German market who, like a mantra said, I need a leverage covenant. No, no matter what, I'm not. If I'm not going to do the deal, I'm not going to do the deal. I need a leverage covenant. Quite a few of them are silenced. So still, it still goes into the optimistic direction rather than the a little bit more cautious direction right at the moment. 
but it'll be interesting to see what will happen next. I think if you now wanted to do a, a financing for a big automotive supplier, you'll have a covenant. The financings we've done two years ago, 90% have a covenant, but 10% don't. Right now, you wouldn't get away without any. So you can, it, so it depends on the market, right? It depends on the market. Overall, you still get away without. And in certain areas like automotive, you see covenants tighten. Yeah, for sure. But it's sector area specific. So there isn't an overall trend yet. I'm not a funds lawyer, so I don't really have an overview. But my impression is it's not crazy, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact returns that infrastructure investments can achieve over the next years. So we're seeing intense competition also from institutional investors who, have, who look at very low uh, returns or can accept low returns. We've seen these investors investing in, in core infrastructure and, and basically pricing out uh, traditional funds with a higher return expectation. So I guess it's more a question of returns and, and how much they, they'll come under pressure and, and be impacted. And I would think that the general impression is that it's, it's, we're going to see lower returns than we've, we have seen in the asset class over the last decade. Yeah. Given that corporates can access capital markets on, you know, so freely, given the role of, of private equity or infrastructure fund managers and the LPs that are coming into their funds, and the role of institutional capital from pension funds and insurance companies, both in debt and in equity. Do banks still matter? And I ask you this knowing that in Germany, it's historically a very commercial bank-driven economy, to a greater extent than many other countries. So do banks still matter? I think it depends on the, on the sector, right? Large-cap leverage finance, banks don't matter, right? Mid-cap leverage finance, it used to be a 90% bank market. Germany and DACH. It's maybe now a 10% bank market. Yeah. If you look at the corporate level, you've seen term loan Bs here and there without a private equity background, like a corporate corporate. But there's still a very strong banking, commercial banking relationship with the Mittelstand company and the banks who have been with them for many years. And also the, the bigger companies who really predominantly either look at capital markets, fine, but not at a direct lender. So they go for a Schulzschein, the German capital markets instrument for investment grade rated company, or go for sort of the traditional commercial banks. And going for a direct lending um, in any form or sh uh, shape or a term long B with the investors you've mentioned, and Marcus will, will, will talk about infrastructure, is the exception still. But in the in the, the leverage finance area, banks are gone, right? There are hardly any there. So it depends on, on, on the growth of the asset and how the asset becomes more stable and evolves, that it becomes more attractive for a capital markets instrument or institutional investors. And also the market has changed, of course, because there are new players who are now investing in that type of assets who wouldn't have. Yeah. And of course, in a historically low interest rate environment, which has been sustained, a borrower does not pay a penalty for locking in long-term debt that's institutional debt or bonds, which may be no call or subject to a make hole, but that, that's, that's fine because rates are so low. When rates start to go up, that may change. I know we're seeing on both sides of the Atlantic a trend where you know banks are still providing, and this has been a trend in the United States for a long time, where banks will provide the shorter term debt, whether it's construction debt for new infrastructure being built, corporate context, you know, maybe a bridge in acquisition financing, 
but it's a bridge to something else. And that something else, that long-term piece may well be in the capital markets. Well, thank you both very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's actually been really entertaining, I have to say. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I hope that all of your positive predictions for 2022 come true for for us and our clients. Oh, they will for sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay, tschüss. Vielen Dank. Ja, vielen, vielen, vielen Dank. Wir hätten es in Deutsch machen sollen dann. Aber es wäre, it would have been a little bit difficult for the audience, maybe. Ja, nächstes Mal können wir alle auf Deutsch reden. <lacht> <lacht> Schönen Sonntag noch, ja? Ciao. Okay, tschüss. Danke schon. Tschüss, Alan. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.